Well, uh, let's continue. 40 days in the Word. So our whole focus in 40 days is not that you would study the Bible and read the Bible for 40 days and then you would quit. Uh, that would defeat everything we're, we're working on. It's just to give you a jump start, how to get into God's Word. And we realize for some of you, like you came into this series and, and reading the Bible, I mean, you're never in the Bible at all. You know, it's just not part of your world. You know what it is. You own a few. But uh, getting into it has just not been a part of it. And our encouragement has been, hey, just get into it daily. Let's not worry about the time frame. Just get into it. Make it be part of it. Some of you, like, it has become kind of just this rigid discipline of I read my five minutes, I read my five minutes, or 15, or whatever. But you feel like, you know, you might as well, you know, be reading something, you know, I don't know, you don't understand because you just don't get anything. And our encouragement in this, in this series to you is to put some different principles into place and how you, what you get out of God's Word. This morning, I think, will be a help to you in that as well. And then uh, above that, for everyone, our encouragement would be, what does God's Word tell us to do? Because at the end of the day, uh, lots of things out there can sell lots of products and tell us about a lot of things. But the Word of God can tell us how to do it, and they can give us power and strength to do it. And so uh, that's how we're going to continue this week. Have you ever seen one of those uh, the, the making of type documentaries? Uh, maybe some film series has come out, and then you see the making of, or you know, you look at you you watch some of those extras on your DVDs when you buy that, the making of Star Wars or the making of the Lord of the Rings, and you sit and watch. I mean, I've, I. I just don't have any patience to sit and watch those, but I know some of you just love those things. My wife loves to watch the making of things. And so I thought, well, if they're so good, why weren't they in the theaters? The movie was in the theater, so that's what I saw. <laughs> I'm ready to be done. Let's go on. But this week, that's kind of what we're going to look at, the making of, the making of a Bible study. How do you get into God's Word? How do you create a little structure for it so that you can really get something out of the Bible this week? And so we're really going to look at, at four different areas, and they're on your sheet. And let me tell you how it's going to flow. I'm going to talk about the four areas, and then we're going to go out back, and we're actually going to kind of walk through a passage, and how do these things actually work into play? Really, the secret of Bible study is simply learning to ask the right kind of questions. It's learning to ask good questions. That's how it starts. When I look at the Scripture and I read the Scripture, I want to ask, you know, what, what is it saying to me? What are the good things I need to pull out of here? What are the things that repeat themselves? What are the themes? And then how does this make a, an impact in my life? There's some passages I've been studying for 20 years, and I've been a Christian for about 22 years. Those are ones I've looked at and I've read, and I've even done Bible study on them, and yet, something new and refreshing comes out of it the next time I look at it because I might have asked a different kind of question or the context of my life is, might have helped me ask a question a, a certain way. And so asking the right question, that's really the starting point. And so in our categories this morning, there's really four questions that go along with it. Again, this isn't the exhaustive method in how you study the, the, the Word of God, but this will certainly help you get going this morning. So uh, there's four words in your outlines and then four questions that follow them up. So let's just jump right into it to start. The first one is the word observation. And we're simply asking the question, what does it say here? What does it say? That when we read God's Word, we read a passage, maybe it's a short verse or maybe it's a long passage, a whole chapter, we're asking the question, what does it actually say? I look at it and I read it and I simply write down what I observe, what I'm seeing. Now, you know I was a baseball coach for a number of years and one of the biggest part of college baseball coaching is recruiting. You got to go out and recruit, right? And what do you do when, to recruit people? Well, you observe them. That's the first thing. I watch the players, and I keep notes on the players. I carry around something like this, 
and I just jot down things, little tidbits of information that I might need to know. I just am seeing. What, what am I looking at is a question. Now, the difference really between Bible reading and Bible study is what? Take a guess. It's, it's in Bible study, we write stuff down. We use our pen and our, our paper and, and our, we type on our, our computer, and we're actually writing down. If we're not doing that, we're, then we're just reading, which is good. Reading's outstanding. So if you're just reading now and you're like, oh, man, I'm missing it. No, you're doing a good thing. Keep reading. But studying God's Word, we take that paper and we start writing as well. We write, first of all, what do we observe? What have we seen there? Now, if you're like me, I can read a passage, and if I don't write anything down, by midday, I've just forgotten what I just read there. I just I can't, can't remember those things, especially if it's, it has a bunch of facts things in it. I just, I just don't remember it. But writing it down is the beginning of study. I just write down, what do I see? The next step I go to is called interpretation. And the question here is really, what does it mean? What does it mean? What I just observed, what I just wrote down, what do they actually mean? Now, some people might just say, well, doesn't the Bible mean what it says? Well, yes and no. <laughs> the Bible means what it means. It means what it means. Every, in every piece of communication, I mean, we often use metaphors or analogies or idioms in our language and how we say it. I mean, we say things that don't literally mean what we are saying. Like if, if you were to write me a note or I were to write you a note and somewhere in the note it said, you know, hey, um, I was pulling Tom's leg. Well, we, don't, we know we don't actually mean pulling his leg, but, if, but a, a thousand years from now, if somebody were to look back and read that and they were trying to figure out what is he saying, was, he, I mean, was somebody actually grabbing his foot and yanking his leg? I can't quite understand why they would be doing that in this context. Well, we would know, we would understand. We wouldn't even need it to be explained to us. And we find that in, in the Bible, sometimes it's the same way. See, the point is the Bible means what it means. We wouldn't take the book of Revelation and interpret it in 21st century eyes, right? I mean, like paved with streets of gold. Uh, oh, he went to Jared's. <laughs> oh, no, it wouldn't, wouldn't make sense, right? Wouldn't make sense. No, it means what it means. Look, for instance, if I gave you the word pin, P-I-N, the word pin, and I were to tell you, you know, what does that word mean to you? You might say rolling pin or bowling pin or pin the tail on the donkey. Uh, you'd be thinking that way. But did you know there's 60 different definitions to the word pin, P-I-N, 60 different definitions. So we can't just say it means this. No, we have to say, what does it mean in the context? What does it mean related to its surrounding things here? If I'm talking about wrestling, it means I pin you to the floor. Totally different meaning there. So that's interpretation. And we look at those things around us. So what, is it, what does it mean, interpretation? The third step is called correlation. We're really asking the question, what other verses explain it? What other verses? And we start to look at other verses in God's word to help us understand what that means. So really, uh, if, if, if you look at those around it, often when we're having a troubled passage, those words around it or those phrases in other places in the Bible that are talking about the same thing, they shed light on something that's very confusing. In fact, the Bible really is the best commentary for the Bible. Did you know that? Now, there's a lots of great commentaries that people have written out there, but the first commentary to go to for the Bible is the Bible because you can go in other areas and you can find something that is clear, something that's explained, something we understand, and you can use that to help interpret another passage in God's Word. Remember, the Bible was written over 1,600 years and over 40 different authors here, 
And as they wrote, the themes correlate together so incredibly close. I mean, they're just exact throughout. And so it makes sense to take, to take something in one passage and then look to another passage because we understand the themes match up so, so clearly. That's correlation. We just correlate. We compare. We look at other stuff. Finally, there's application. And this is the question of, what am I going to do about it? You see, up till now, if we had done the first three steps, we could do that in any class that we take, in any subject out there. But the Bible is different. We said two weeks ago, as we were kicking off this series, three weeks ago, we said we believe that the Bible brings about change. It brings about transformation in people's lives. And that we could say testimonies of people that had just miserable experiences or were doing horrible things, and they get a hold of God's Word, they read God's Word, they let God's Word minister to them, and they're transformed, they're different. You know, they become you know, great, great husbands and great moms and dads because of the power in this book. And so this question is very, very important in the Bible study. Every time that you're looking at something, asking the question, what am I going to do about it? What is that? How does that impact my life? How does it make me different? And so those are our four stages. And so we're going to take a, a passage this morning, and we're just going to kind of walk through a passage. And we'll, we'll go fairly quick. So if you like to write a lot of notes, just scribble all over your things. If you want to just take the verses that are on there, take the verses, and you can look them up later. We'll hit most of the verses, but we put extras in there that, for your own, that you can spend time on your own looking up that and, and looking at it. The passage we're going to look at this morning is, is one we walked through a bit last year in a series called Overcome. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. But what I did was I purposely took a passage that we didn't stop and, and really dive into during that time because it's a passage that as we read it, and you'll, you'll find out, it might be a passage we skipped over often. It's kind of a transition passage. It gets us from one good meat thing to another, and we kind of skip over it, right? Well, let's look this morning on how this passage can be of benefit when we take our four, our four categories this morning, our four questions, and we ask them. So if you have your Bible, open up to Philippians chapter 2, and we'll start working through this starting in verse 19. Let me give you a little bit of background here. You see, this is one of the letters that Paul is writing here. He's writing from Rome. Remember, he is in prison in Rome, and he hopes to go to Philippi and to see the Philippians, uh, but it's not happening right now. It may not happen in his near future. It may, may never happen, but he's writing this note to them. You see, they had collected an offering, and they had sent that offering to Paul to help with the ministry, and Paul was sending, basically, the book of Philippians is a thank you letter to the people at Philippi. And so he's writing this with a, a few encouraging words and some teaching points involved in it as well. And he's writing this on. Now, it's called Philippians because it's written to the people in the city of Philippi. So it makes sense. Philippi, they write into Philippians. You know, if they write to the people of Corinth, then we have the book of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, right? And so and so it goes on uh, in, in there. If they were to write to us, I guess maybe it would be the, the, you know, the book of the... I don't know, what is it, Greensboroians? I don't know, what do we call ourselves here? So, I don't know. But uh, that's what's going on, and that's why the book is called this. So he's writing to the Philippians. Uh, they've taken up this love offering, and they sent it to him, and now he's writing back. And we pick it up in verse 19 of chapter 2 here. And let me just read it straight. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy, <coughs> excuse me, that I also may be be cheered when I receive news about him. I have no one else like him who takes in genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself 
Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord, I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he is ill. Indeed, he is ill and almost died. But God has mercy on him. And not only him, also, <coughs> excuse me, also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send you, so send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. So as we read that passage, and maybe you're familiar with the book of Philippians, it's easy to say, well, that's a nice little passage, but uh, I don't see where the meat is in that passage. I don't see what there is to really dig into there. I mean, really, he's talking about a couple friends. He's going to send these couple guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. I'm going to just send these guys to you, and that's basically the gist of the passage. But if we were to leave it just there and not ask questions further, well, we'd be missing a ton. And not only would we be missing a ton, but we'd be missing some of the things that are most significant for us to learn and gain, especially in our postmodern culture. So let's just take this passage and let's just work through it. First, let's look at observation. What does it say here? Now, if we were to read it, your list and somebody else's list might look a little bit different because certain things stand out at certain times. But let me share with you three things that kind of popped out as I was reading it. First of all, Paul intends to send two men to Philippi. Okay, <laughs> nothing powerful and exciting there, it doesn't seem like, but that's just an observation. As you look at the passage, that's what's clear. Uh, Paul intends to send these two guys. He's, that's just an observation. I hope to send you Timothy, he says in verse 19. Uh, here's one of the guys in, in verse 25. He says, I think it's necessary to send you Epaphroditus to send him back to you. He actually came from that church, and he had came to deliver the gift uh, that they had collected to Paul. And so it's just a, a simple observation, right? Okay, let's go on to the next one. Paul encouraged these guys as roles models. With both of these guys, I mean, he, he holds them up in a place of honor. That's pretty clear. And so when we look at that there, that's an observation. These guys are looked at well with Paul. You might think, well, isn't everybody? No, read Paul's writings. You'll find there's some people he brings out and he says, these are bad guys. <laughs> Don't follow these guys. You know? And one time he even tells them about a guy that he should kick out of the church. And this is how Paul writes. So here he is holding these guys up in great honor. He's endorsing them as role models. Verse 20, Paul says about Timothy, I have no one else like him. Now you might read a verse like that and just skip over it. But think about if somebody said that about you, and it was positive. <laughs> if it was negative, it's not so great. But if it was positive, I have no one like him. No one like him. Now, as I said, as a former baseball coach, there was times where I'd say, man, that player, I just, I don't have another like him. I, don't, I mean, the, the leadership quality or the playing ability and the, you know, just the buy-in. I'd say, I have no one like him. That's quite a compliment. That's what Paul is giving to Timothy in this passage. I mean, Paul, Paul, you know, he's like one of the greatest believers in the New Testament, right? And this is the guy that's telling Timothy, I have no one like him. He's incredible, this guy. 
That's pretty significant that we read there. Epaphroditus, in verse 29, he says, Welcome him and honor men like him. To look at this guy and say, not only welcome him, encourage him, and bring him in. You might say welcome to a lot of people, right? I mean, that's what we're to do as Christians, to welcome people and love people and, and be friendly and caring, right? But he also says there, honor men like him. The word like is important here. What does he mean, like? Well, we'll look at that when we get to interpretation. Right now, we're just observing. Notice in both of them, he says, like him, in Timothy and for Epaphroditus there. So naturally, that would bring me to the third question. And I would ask, so what are these guys like? What are they like here? So if you look down, just taking simple observations, we can observe just a few things here. Look in verse 20 and 21. He says about Timothy, he takes genuine interest in you. Good quality. In verse 22, he says about Timothy, he has proved himself. Well, what would that mean? What would proved himself mean? We'll talk about that in a little bit. In verse 25, he says about Epaphroditus, he's my brother, my fellow worker. And then he throws in this phrase, my fellow soldiers. I would say, I would want to say, well, what, I wonder, wonder what that means. And I'd want to figure that out. Verse 26, he says he longs for all of you and he is distressed. Well, what's he distressed about? What's the background story there? And then finally, in 27 through 30, he says he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. You see, what we've done here now is we've just observed the Scripture. We've just looked in here for now, and we said, what does it say? What does it say? We do this in a lot of areas in our life. If you're trying to fix your car, and you have no idea about car repair, I'm in that category. When I open up that book, and I'm looking and trying to fix something in my engine, I mean, I'm looking and saying, now, what, what is it telling me? I don't even know what that part is, but what is it telling me to do with that part? Um, and I try to go at it from there. And sometimes, there, you know, there's a broken car in my garage right now, so you can know how it goes sometimes. But that's all we're doing here is we're looking. What does it say? What does it tell us? Then we look at interpretation. I want to ask, what does it mean? We take some of the stuff that we observed, and we say, what do those things mean that I just observed here? And this morning, when we take a look at just those three things that we observed, guess what? We find out some pretty significant things. We find out some characteristics about a a godly person. And this morning, from this point on, guys, I want to make sure, men, you're really hearing this, because as Paul's talking, you're seeing two men that are role models for other men. And when I look at a passage like this, I want to ask, as, as a man, I want to say, what does a man of God look like? Now, this passage is applicable for everyone here, man or female, or male or female, it doesn't matter. Um, but guys, I, I especially, you should perk up when you hear a passage that talks about a man of God and what a man of God is supposed to be like. And so let's, let's just jump into that this morning. Let's look at these things. I, I marked five. You might, in your study, you might mark ten more. Who knows? But here's five. Uh, that, I, that I found, number one, and again, this is interpretation. We're starting to figure out what this stuff means. That we find out that a godly man or a godly person is caring. That just kind of goes right on 180 from what we think you know, manly men should be about, right? I mean, we should love our, our wife and family, right? But uh, we don't always think caring because we think that's a little too sappy, right? That's a little too, too soupy for us. We think that... The, but the Word of God, excuse me, says uh, the godly man is caring. He's compassionate, caring. That he's not, he's not selfish. He's looking to the needs of others. He's thinking about others before himself. He's not self-centered. I mean, Tim- Timothy, the Word says, genuinely cares about you. That's an important passage. As a guy, I want to say, hey, that's important for me to hear there, that Timothy cares. And that, 
I need to care as well. Uh, if there's anything we need today in our culture, it's to hear a message like this, right? To care for other people. How significant that is. Because in our postmodern culture, if you'll take it for what it is in postmodern culture, what you will have is you've got to figure out for yourself what's right for you. And you've got to work through it. And we've taken that from just a simple selfishness to a very academic-based type of thinking. And so we reason this type of thinking. We rationalize and we write books about it. And we, we draw what people have said over generations and philosophers and draw it all together. And it all comes together. But really, at its core, you know what it is? It's I'm looking out for myself. I'm interpreting this world. I'm interpreting what I deal with based on me. I mean, when's the last time you, you've seen an ad? There's a few of them out there. But when's the last time you've really seen a good ad that is promoting you to be unselfish. No, the ads are selling you something. You deserve it. You know, you need this. This will make you fill in the blank if you'll purchase this product for you. TV shows, novels, magazines, video games, on down the list, they're mostly consumer-based, which means they're designed for you to get your fix, to get what you think you need to get out of that, and that's how they're marketed. Sometimes, even in the church world, if we're not careful we become consumer-driven as well. We come and we say, what, what's in it for me? Do they have this program that I like? No? Is it the style that I like? And we start to interpret things based on our, our, own, our own thoughts and how we think things should be done. But Paul is saying, look, that's not, that's not a godly person. That's not these two gentlemen here. That's certainly not Timothy because he uses a direct word on that to say that here. They need to be caring. The second thing we learn about Timothy here is that Timothy has proved himself. Proved himself. I, I wonder what that means. You can circle that if you want, as I looked at that. Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the, in the work of the gospel. Do you know what the word proven means? The proven is it's tested. He's been tested. You see, what he's saying here is, look, this guy has been through it, and he's been verified. He's made it through. I've seen him in action, and I've checked it out, and I've determined him reliable. He's like, you know, the ram tough guy. That's what Paul is saying here in this passage. This guy's dependable. He's reliable. He's been proven faithful. And in Paul's view, he's been proven biblically faithful here. That's what he's saying about Timothy. For me as a guy, I would want to say, that's the kind of guy I want to be. When people think about me, I don't want them to think just, man, he's a tough guy. I want them to think he is dependable, and he is reliable. You know, he's a rock in what he believes, and he's a rock in what he says he's going to do. And there's times I look back at my life and go, man, I didn't follow through. I said I was going to do that, or I, I had great intentions. I didn't follow through. Paul is saying here of Timothy, look, he's proven himself. He has seen him at work. And so God's looking, number two here is God's looking for people that are consistent. They're consistent. They're trustworthy, not wishy-washy, but they're, they're rock solid. They're solid in what they believe. They're solid in who they are in Christ. They're solid in what they say they're going to do. You see, that's why Paul is saying, Timothy, he's one I got to send to you guys because that's the kind of person he is. Now think about it at work. I mean, who is the guy you want to promote? Who's the person you want to promote and move on? Who's the person you want to bring in to be your partner? Is it the unreliable person? <laughs> is it the person that just doesn't get it done? No, you want to bring in the person that will help the production the best, right? And that's, why, that's what Paul's looking at here. You know the difference between a conviction and an opinion? You know, an opinion is just something you'll argue about. But a conviction is something you'll die for. I mean, you'll go to the mat for that. If God has laid that on you through his word, 
you'll go strong. Yeah, I remember a kid once when I was youth pastoring, he was telling me, growing up, he never knew if his dad was going to hug him or if he was going to hit him. Never quite sure. His dad was just so back and forth, so back and forth, different guy all the time. It wasn't consistent. You know what that means? That guy wasn't living as a godly man. Because in, in here, Paul's telling us, look, godly man, he's consistent, holds through it, lives it out. And so, uh, uh, first of all, we say, you know, somebody is caring, but also they're consistent. Let's look at number three. The next verse, it says, I, want, I send you back to Ephroditus, my brother and my fellow worker and my fellow soldier. He gives us these three meta- metaphors to this relationship, brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier here. And he says, he's also your messenger because you sent him to me to take care of my needs. You know, you sent him to me. He came from this church to come over to Paul. I'd be interested to know, and we don't have time for it this morning, what are the circumstances surrounding that? Why was he the one chosen? You'll actually find that in Philippians chapter 4 if you spend some time looking at that. But these three metaphors, they have something in common. And the thing that I really see that they have in common here is cooperation, is that it, it is obvious, obvious here that Epaphroditus, I mean, he is a team player here, that he is committed to the cause of Christ, and he's willing to do what he needs to do to carry out that cause. I mean, Paul says, first of all, that you're my brother. He's making this family-type statement. Did you know that in the Bible there's 133 times that Christians are referred to as brother, uh, as brother in the Bible? I mean, that's a lot. In fact, in many of our churches, even today, certainly over the years, we call each other brother or sister. You know, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. Um, that's said quite a, uh, quite a lot. You know, sometimes that's, that's kind of drifted away in our thinking, but you get the family type of feel that's going on. One of the things that attracted me to Windover Hills and why I wanted to be here in this, this family is because it was a family. I thought, hey, I think I'm a good fit for this church. But you know what else? I thought, man, this, is, this church is a great fit for me, for my family. I knew they would care for my family, and they would be a family to my family as well. Many of you have the same testimony. You know, that's what God does. When we, when we lock into who he is and what he has to offer us and what he tells us in the scripture, we become like that. And so Paul is saying that this is important. This godly man is cooperative. You know, he, he works in. It doesn't mean that he just lays down and lets everyone run over him. That's not cooperative here. That's not what we're talking about. It means that he's willing to buy into the plan. He's willing to do his part. And we find out that he's willing to go all the way to the nth degree in this as well. Let's take a look at uh, number four, verse 26. It talks about Epaphroditus, and it says that he longs for all of you, and he is distressed because you heard he was ill. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a passage that if I read it over first time, it would be a little confusing, and so I'd probably put it to the side and just move on and read something else, you know, because we don't always like to read confusing stuff, right? So as you look at that, you say, what does that mean? He's distressed because you heard he is ill. Or if I understand what it means, well, what is there to gain out of a passage? Well, let's remember the context of what's going on here. Paul is, he is in Rome. He's in a Roman prison here. And Epaphroditus, he is the one that brings Paul the love offering that they have, they have put together. And so when he brings this, I mean, basically, he's this guy in the church in Philippi, and he just says, hey, I'll do it. I'll go. And we find out he's a businessman in Philippians 4. And so he actually leaves his business. And remember, he's walking from Philippi to Rome. He's walking there. There's no planes, trains, automobile, all that kind of stuff. And so 
he gets out and he goes. So he's got to leave his business for a couple months to do this journey. And remember, this is not, you know, like uh, he's out there and there's, you know, police protection on the roads and all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, he is out there. There's bandits. There's, you know, there's, there's just things that he'll run into. And he has to carry his own supplies, all this kind of stuff. There's not convenient hotels and, you know, Sheets gas stations right off the, the place where you can get two hot dogs for 99 cents. Um, it's not available to him. So he's out on this journey for two or three months, and he's going to deliver this very dangerous journey. Now, why would a successful businessman head out and go on a journey like this? He's committed. He says, you know, this is my role. This is my task. This is what I can do for the kingdom, for the church in Philippi. And he heads out and he does it probably at his own expense. We don't really know on that one for sure. And we find out that on the way, Epaphroditus, he gets sick. He nearly dies delivering this offering. Nearly dies. In fact, Paul makes reference to it two different times that he nearly dies here. What's his reaction to this situation? Well, his reaction is he's, he's distressed because the people in Philippi are distressed. He's concerned that he's caused them concern. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting way to look at it. It's not just that he's receiving their sympathy and, oh, we're so sorry you've gone through that. He actually feels bad that they're feeling bad. He feels bad that they're worrying and stressing and have anxiety over him. It's not what he wanted them to do. He wanted to take the offering and say, look, I'll do it. I'll take this. You don't worry. Just keep doing the business of God there in, at the church of Philippi. I'll take on this task. And so he certainly didn't want to take away from anything because they're worried about him. That's how his motivation, that's what his thinking is like. He, you can see here what really Paul is saying here is, I mean, this is a person who is considerate. Considerate. And Paul's letting us know, you know, a godly person is, is considerate. I mean, they're thinking about others first. They're thinking about uh, how what they do affects other people. And here, he doesn't want to see that happen. He doesn't want to see them discouraged and stressed and worried and have anxiety over his situation. And so he is considerate. He's considerate. He, considerate is just basically you're thinking of others. You're thinking of their situation. You're, you're wondering here, wonder what, wonder what they would feel like if I do this. And before we jump and, and do something, we wonder, what's the response? What's it going to do to this other person? Sometimes, you know, you might hear somebody say, well, I just tell it like it is. <laughs> I just say what I think, you know. And, and sometimes, you know, we actually kind of brag about this like it's, a, you know, like an incredible quality. Now, I, it's important to speak the truth and not just blow smoke, you know, of somebody, uh, but it's... It's here, you know, it's important. But somebody who just said, look, I say it like it is. I just say what I think, you know. Well, there's a word for that. The word is rude. <laughs> That's the word. Offensive may be another word. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, the word in your head might be something like idiot or something like that that rolls through your thinking. And yet sometimes we glorify this, this quality here. Babies say what they think, right? Little kids, they have no filter. They say exactly what they think. But God is saying, look, we can be considerate. This is a passage that teaches us to think about others' people. Now, we, we might look up in other passages throughout the Bible, and we find other times that God's Word has called us to be considerate, and we can even interpret this passage in that. 1 Peter 3, 7, it says this, Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives. Did you know that one, husbands? Do you have that one memorized? We often memorize the one about them submitting to us. But we forget about passages like this that are speaking very directly. Be considerate as you live with your wives. 
And guess what? I mean, break down the, the Greek uh, there, and you'll see the considerate is talking about the wives. So it's not being considerate to your friends while you live with your wife. It's not what it's talking about there. So don't try to twist it a little bit. That means we got to be considerate in the marriage. we got to be considerate. You know the number one problem in marriage? Number one problem. Selfishness. That's what it is. When I, when I interpret everything from my own perspective in the marriage or what, what I think should happen, that's a problem. That's a problem. And we often do a pretty good job of kind of being a little bit unselfish with our kids because we feel like, well, I've got to take them here. I've got to do this. They need to have these. But we forget. We're called to do that with our spouse all the time. In fact, you're called to do it with your spouse more than your kids. Do you know that? Because your spouse is number one in that marriage situation. I mean, we got to be considerate, right, with our decisions. we got to be considerate with one, each other's fears. we got to be considerate with each other's strengths and with each other's weaknesses. Husband's wife, we have to be considerate with sex as well. Very important area to be considerate. we got to be considerate of communication. <laughs> Did I communicate that? Did I not? we got to be considerate of those type of things. You know, how men and women make decisions, you know, they're very different. So I spent some time this week looking at some of that stuff, really just for fun, but I pulled out a couple fun stuff. Um, you know, let, let's say you were going to go to the Gap to buy a pair of pants. Heavens forbid that <laughs> I would have to do that. But let's say you're having to go to the Gap to buy a pair of pants. You know, if you're going to the Gap, if you're women, you might, you might, you might make a day of it. You might hit Macy's and Nordstrom's and JCPenney's and places like that. You might have to stop off to look at the ads and the coupons first to make sure, you know, you're hitting that killer deal. As men, we know nothing about killer deals. Um, and you make this little trip around and, and, uh, uh, and you see these stores and you finally make it to the gap. The man, I mean, we just beeline straight into the gap and we find the first pair of jeans that has the tags that say the numbers we think we wear and we're out of there. Dressing rooms, there's not necessary. Not necessary. We have a room at home. So, so buying a pair of jeans, really, for a man, buying a pair of jeans takes about six minutes and costs about 30 bucks, right? For, for a lady, it, for a lady, it takes... You're right. Where does it cost 30 bucks? Well, but for a lady, it might, you know, for your spouse, it might take, you know, it might take four and a half hours to get through, and it, it might cost 900 bucks. I don't know. Um, my, it's different. It's different, right? It's, it's different. Uh, let me just explain decision-making for a second. The chances of, like, the men, us winning the argument when we're dating is about 50-50. Um, we're engaged, it goes down about 20% or so, and uh, once you're married, just, just forget about it. Forget about it, guys. <laughs> just forget about it. It's over. Uh, there was this guy that was interviewed. He was been married 72 years. The interviewer asked, what's your secret? And he said, I just have two words. And the interviewer was like, really? You have married 72 years and you only have two words to offer us? And you know what those two words were? Yes, dear. You're right. Yeah. All right. We're, just ha- we're having a little bit of fun. Those were extreme exaggerations. We know that $900 is not accurate. 860, max, but not nine, <laughs> 900, so I'm joking. All right, so we're having fun with that, but the, the godly person, and men especially, the godly man is considerate. We think about others. We think about others. It's not looking out for number one all the time. We think about others. Five, the next verse is, is verse 27. Indeed, talking to Epaphroditus, he is ill and he almost died. He almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you couldn't give me. I mean, he's saying, these guys in Philippi, look, you couldn't come help me. You sent this offering, which I greatly appreciated. Epaphroditus came, and guess what? He almost died for the sake of Christ. 
Now, it's not like back in the day. We get a little worried about jumping on a plane and we get a little nervous when it goes up and when it goes down. There was real, real life danger. Epaphrodites had some plan had to be in place that, look, I'm leaving. I'm taking this. Uh, I may or may not return. I can't be sure. It's my plan to return, but I may not be back. Maybe he's already telling his son, hey, here's how to run the business. Here's what you're going to be do. We don't know. We don't get all that story here. But we know in God's word that Paul says he is risking his life. Men especially, that's a phrase for you to circle there. Risking your life. Because the fifth characteristic here is that a godly person is courageous. Godly person's courageous, willing to take risk. Men especially, we have a desire to be courageous. If we're not acting on it right now, maybe it's because, you know, we got a little lazier, scared, or whatnot, but there is something that drives us within that we want to be courageous. We want to be risk takers, right? We want to get out there and do it. And I've met a lot of guys who are risk takers, but they're risk takers in the mountain they've climbed or the plane they've jumped out of or the wave that they've surfed or maybe they've been courageous in the, in the business world in the investment that they put in or the money they threw in, not knowing for sure if they would get it back. And they've been very risky in this. In fact, some of them have been so risky and then they did get a good return that they write the books and they go on the circuits and they teach you how to be risky in that area again, but not too risky because uh, they want you to make money too, or at least they want you to buy their book. Um, but what about being risky for Christ? That's really what Paul's saying here is being courageous, being able to go out and say, look, I'll throw it all away. I'll throw it all away for the sake of Christ. And this is what Epaphroditus is doing here. I mean, he is going out on really what could be the most dangerous journey of his life. And he's going out and he does it. And sure enough, he almost dies in this journey here. And that was just from, from sickness. He, was, he had, I guess, God's favor and not getting beat up by bandits here. Do you know what he risked his life means in the, in the Greek here when it's written? It means he hazarded his life. He hazarded. Put himself in harm's way here. I mean, he was a gambler on this and what he did. And we hear about gamblers. In fact, on ESPN now, somehow, the, the gambling, the world of poker has become a sport and is on ESPN um, continuously. So um, now I have one more thing to compete with baseball, as if football wasn't enough. So... But yeah, I mean, we think about that and we go, wow, that's incredible. He's going all in. He's spending that kind of money. Paul's saying, look, he hazarded his life for the sake of Christ. That's something we want to we really grab onto in a passage like this, men especially. The question for us this morning would be, what do we risk in? And in whatever we risk, is there any risk for the sake of Christ? Is there any risk? I mean, walking up to a coworker and, and just opening up the door for spiritual conversation I realize that can be risky. Not so much for me here at the church, because the people I work with are okay with that. But in yours, that might be an issue. I understand that's of great risk to talk to somebody about Christ. What are you doing to risk? I want you to hear something that, though, is not what the passage is saying. The passage is not saying, go out and be offensive for the cause of Christ. Not what the passage is telling us at all. Meaning, you don't need to invite somebody to church offensively or to talk to them about Jesus offensively, but take a risk. Live courageously and get out there and do it. Hey, this, the third area that we're talking about this morning, let me pick up the pace for you, is, is this correlation. And the question really is, is, when we look at the Bible, is there anything else in the Bible that can share with us about this? The first thing I would want to ask in this passage is, does the Bible talk about Timothy anywhere else in, in the Bible? Well, there's two whole books that are called First and Second 
Timothy, right? Well, I'd want to get into those, and I'd want to read those, and I would want to know what they're about. And then I might figure out some cross-reference for, for Ephesus, because Timothy was there, and I'd want to know how did he connect into that town. What about Ephrodites? Well, yeah, not nearly as much, but if you look at Philippians 4, we get more information about him. So you'd want to do that and look at some of these other things. The way you can do this is you can grab a Bible concordance. Bible concordance is just simply a it's simply an index with all the words, or you can get some of them that actually have the, the categories as well, or the themes as well. And basically, you just look up that word or theme, and it's going to tell you all the passages in the Bible. An exhaustive concordance will give you every single word. You want to know how many times the word the is found in the Bible? Grab an exhaustive concordance. I don't understand why you would do that, but if you want to, you can look up that word there. You can find these really in any bo- bookstore, like Limstone Christian Bookstore here in Kernersville, with our own Ray and Faith Mashinsky. They'd be happy to see you any day there. These are great, these are great books to have. Some of your Bibles at the back of a study Bible, it'll have kind of a, a shortened version of that, and you can look and you can find it in other places. So the first three areas here, this is really getting into the meat of God's Word. As you do it more and more, you actually will learn a knack for this. And guess what? We live in a, a location, in a, in a country you have the freedom to do this all the time, all the time. But guess what? We're not doing it like other people are doing it around the world. We don't get into God's Word, maybe because we have the freedom. This morning, I wanted to invite up a, a couple that's, that's significant to me because they're uh, my in-laws, Cherie's parents, who are uh, missionaries, and they'll be heading to, to China in just, in just a, a short period of time. And they're going to be there specifically teaching God's Word in a country that, though it's a little bit more lax now, traditionally has not been overly favorable to God's Word at all. And so I've invited to come up and share a couple minutes uh, their journey and what they're going to do. So would you welcome Robert and Kay Bickert?
So how does something like this come about? We could do the first three steps, and guess what? It's no different than any other book. No different than any other textbook you grab. But the fourth and final is that word application, that this book has been applied to people's lives, that people have taken this, they've realized the power that it has to offer, and movements like what have just been shared, they take place, right? But guess what? It starts with an individual. And right now, the only application that's of greatest significance for you this morning is the application to your own life. Is how are you going to let God's Word sink into your life and challenge you? And don't just let it challenge you in this general sense of, I need to be a better Christian. What is God specifically challenging you to? So when you look at a passage like this, there's nine questions. Let me just go through them quick. We're not going to talk about them. But they're things that you can take away and you can ask yourself. Any passage you study, you can ask these questions. You can ask yourself, is there a sin to confess? Is there something in this passage that challenges my own sin in my life, my own disobedience? Is there a promise to claim? Is there something God's saying in the passage that said, claim this promise? You know, you don't have to worry. I've taken care of it. You can claim things. Is there an attitude that needs to be changed? Does God say, look, your attitude should be like this? Is there a, a command to be followed? We don't like the word commands anymore in the church world, especially, right? We think commands, that's all about legalism. But guess what? God, God's word commands us to be about things. And guess what? It's always for our good. Is there an example to follow? This morning, I would say to you, for men especially, there's two pretty good examples to follow this morning, even in this brief passage. Is there a prayer to, to pray in this verse? Like, and when you read this verse, does it immediately send you into, I need to be praying for this in my own life? Or does the scripture itself teach you how to pray? Is there an error to avoid? <laughs> I've never spent enough time in my life learning everything I need to know from my own mistakes. I've got to learn from some other people's, right? Is there something to avoid here? Is there a truth to believe? Something, man, I've, I've struggled with that, but the word of God is telling us, I need to claim that and believe that. Is there something I can thank God for? Thank you, God. They, I, I'm reminded once again in this passage that you do this. Those are questions that you can ask to walk you on that journey. Remember this morning, the passage and the thing that connected with me the most is the phrase, honor those like this. I walked away from this passage, and personally, I said, I want to be just like this. I want it to be like this. I want a guy like a Paul, or certainly I want God to say, honor somebody like Tom. And, you know, it's not because of status. It's not going to be because of, of finances. It's going to be part of, like, characteristics that we found in this passage. You can do this every day with any passage that you grab, any passage you read in God's Word, and it'll make a difference, and it'll make an impact, and lead you closer to God and get you more on the journey to impacting people in this world. Well, let me pray for you, and we'll invite our praise team to come back up. In just a minute, our, our ushers are going to come and receive our morning offering. This is the time that if you're new with us and you filled out one of those cards, uh, you, this is the time you can, you can work on that and fill that out and drop it in the offering. If there's something you need to communicate to us this morning, like you'd like to be a part of the membership class or anything like that, or you'd like to be baptized, write that on that card and just drop that in just a few minutes, and uh, we'd love to receive that. We're very private with that information. It's not going out on any, on any uh, list. It's just for our own purposes. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your word, and that this morning you showed us how we can open your word and study your word. And Lord, I know that there's some out here that they've been saying probably for years in their own life, Lord, I just don't think I get anything out of scripture. And this morning, Lord, 
I pray that they could go out of here with just a, re, a renewed sense, a renewed encouragement that I can open up the Word and I can do some study in the Word. And God, you can teach me and I can interact with you maybe in a way that I just haven't done in a long time. And so I pray if that's you, just jump into it. Let God speak to you and move you on even a deeper level. Lord, bless us as we go. Thank you for the community of this family. I pray you would continue to have it grow. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, our ushers are going to come now. If you'd stand with us, let's go out singing one more.